Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 116 and the very beginning of Artifice season five, um, starting off 2022 with a bang. Um, I almost have all of season five recorded and I'm really excited about it. There's like excellent diversity of uh, mediums and personalities um, and conversations coming up for us uh, between now and July. And I'm, I'm, can't wait for you guys to hear what I've what I've got for you. Um, as always, I would love to hear from you, hear what you're liking, what you want to hear more of. Um, I know I'm feeling refreshed and rejuvenated after um, a month off of the pod, um, and I'm excited to uh, to dig back in and have kind of like new motivation. So if you have feedback or thoughts or anything, this is a great time to tell me as I'm kind of planning um, season six and scheduling interviews for that. So today's episode is a conversation that I really loved um, with an, a kind of an old friend, Andrew Maxfield. Um, yeah, I'll let uh, I'll let you guys hear kind of more of how we know each other and um, and yeah, I just I, f- I found this conversation really thought provoking and you know Andrew and I got into a lot of uh, my favorite topics and you know kind of the the deep dive philosophizing that I that I most appreciate. So I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Andrew. Um, I'm going to read you some sections of his bio right now. The compositions of Andrew Maxfield, hailed as rhythmically vital, superbly judged, and tender by Fanfare Magazine, have been performed throughout the U.S. and Europe. A recent winner of the King Singer's New Music Prize, Andrew has been a composer fellow of the National Collegiate Choral Organization and composer in residence for Southern Virginia University and Newburyport Choral Society. Um, Then we have a list of a bunch of incredible... Um, commissions that Andrew has done and a bunch of other cool things, a cool list, and the entire bio is in the show notes, so you can read it there. Andrew studied music at Brigham Young University, where he was valedictorian and where he occasionally teaches. That's um, the hound that I'm babysitting, Lambert, crying in the background. Lambert, say hi to everybody. Now he's shy and he's not wanting to cry anymore. Uh, Okay, back to Andrew. He has pursued advanced studies in counterpoint and harmony at the EAMA, Nadia Boulanger Institute in Paris, France, graduate composition studies at Boston Conservatory at Berkeley, and doctoral studies at the University of Bristol in England in the UK. His primary teachers include Philip Lasser, Juilliard, John Pickard, Jonathan Bailey Holland, and Marty Epstein. He has also studied with Aaron J. Kernis and Stephen Semetz through the ACDA Choral Composers Forum. He also holds an MBA of Arts Administration from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Andrew lives with his wife, Liz Davis-Maxfield, a cellist, expert in Irish traditional music, and a rock climber, and their two handsome high-octane boys, plus a super, plus a hyper puppy, just downhill from Sundance in Provo, Utah. Um, yeah, I think that's enough. Uh, in terms of announcements from me, uh, I had um, scheduled another single release later this month in January, but I've been working with a, a new um, 
I hired a PR company in New York, fingers crossed that that will kind of help me get some more things out and we might have a different timeline coming up. So um, next releases on the Hallowed Wide are are pending as of this moment, Um, but I'm excited. I have lots of things just ready to go, ready to show you um, this year in 2022 and I'm excited for Uh, to be able to roll all of that out, but I'm not exactly sure what's happening next or exactly when. So um, if you care about my work and you like hearing my writing, both musical and prose, um, make sure you're on my mailing list. It's the best place to be to make sure you're not missing anything. And yeah, like I said, I'm excited for season five. I hope you are too. And let's kick it off with a bang with Andrew Maxfield. Enjoy. Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. As long as you don't ask me to sing, we're going to be just <laughs> I'm fine. I'm not going to. I won't ask you to sing. <laughs> um, that's easy. Well, do you have any questions before we start? No, I think you should just launch into Great. it. I'm, I'm always a fan. Like, what do they say? Always be rolling. Yeah. <laughs> From the yeah, top. That's good advice. Well, I like to talk to people about their childhoods first. And it's kind of a funny one because like we've only ever talked together like, I don't know, three times. But I feel like we're old friends because you're old friends with my Andrew. That's a true story. Yeah. Your Andrew's mom was my first piano first teacher. first little piano teacher, yeah. In about 1985. Oh my gosh. Wow, I wasn't even <laughs> born yet <laughs> in 1985. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like the Maxfields are like old family friends, but it's like a it's like an adopted feeling. Like it's not my it's not based on a real experience. <laughs> Adoption is real. You can adopt me. That's fine. It's just like, but you know what I mean? Like the I'm sure you have things like that with the, your in-laws too of like, oh, these are our family friends. Yeah, well, the yeah your shared your shared stories right. start getting a little bit blurred, and you don't remember which story belongs to well, him. Totally, especially teaching at UVU. Also, yes, I am. Got it. Yeah, so I'll I'll run into Stuart at work, and so it's it's funny because it's like you guys were you know part of Andrew's childhood, and now you're like part of like you guys wouldn't talk to Andrew Merrill if it wasn't like for me. Well, probably the, that's true. And Which so is just we're, a funny, weird we're, thing. We're, we're grateful for you. Therefore, <laughs> it's just funny. It's funny. Just like and I'll meet people like that. Like I was recording um, my record at June Audio a couple of weeks ago or months ago. And now I guess time is weird. And I Robbie Connolly was playing guitar on my record. <laughs> and like Andrew, my Andrew popped in at the end of the um, at the evening just to kind of like say hi. And. They were like, like Robbie was like, wait, I think I know you. And then he was like, wait, you played in like my high school band. And like Andrew didn't remember it at all. (laughs) It's just so funny. Like, and we're, I feel like the two of us are always having things like that. We're like people who I'm working with presently, like have crossed paths with him. Yeah. You know, in the early 2000s. Well, what did your Andrew end up doing? He's an engineer. 
like yeah. a like a Mathy science math, one. <laughs> Mathy math, sciencey stuff. Yeah, he works kind for, of like his dad, right? Right. Yeah, and PhDs it's funny. PhDs in all sorts of stuff. Yep, he has a PhD in uh, materials engineering. Oh wait, seriously? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was sort of being. Yeah. No, he does. <laughs> categorical and no, metaphorical, he, but that's a that's a real PhD. Does. Yeah, yeah, he builds semiconductors. Um, he works at Micron, which is just was purchased by Texas Instruments. So technically, they're switching over in November. And I'm guessing. Texas Instruments doesn't make like musical instruments. They sure don't. They oh, do boy, make calculators, though. <laughs> Wait, do people still buy calculators? Yeah, like graphing calculators for like calculus class and like. But yeah, they do. Don't they have phones for that now? I mean, really fancy calculators do things that your phone calculator cannot do. Didn't you take calculus in high school, Andrew? Yeah, but in fairness, that was in the. <laughs> The in, tail end true. of the last millennia. <laughs> that's so. true. I was talking to one of my students the other day, one of my college students, about the fact that like I didn't have a smartphone until after I finished my master's degree. Oh like, yeah, that was just like not a thing, and they couldn't like understand. They were they were asking me some question like, "Well, how did you handle this when you were in college?" And I was like, "This is a wrong question. <laughs> like this was not. I forget what it was, but it was something that I was like, you're." You're thinking things were different. <laughs> I took all of my notes as an undergrad on yellow legal pads. Yeah. Yeah. And I I actually culled through them a while ago and I still have like the the more useful notes. Oh, I love it. I also have like notebooks and notebooks from college that So many notebooks. I treasure. I actually I've been kind of gearing up to do like a like a de junking of my mm. closets. Mm -hmm. And I, I may get rid of some things. Yeah, but I reread my undergrad notes. Really, some good things in there. Everyone's <laughs> I I keep like a folder of like old like essays that I was proud yeah. of, like our research papers, and sometimes I read those things and just think like, yep, yeah, I'm still proud of this. Yeah, I'm still glad that this was a thing that I did and learned. Good for you. Yeah, thanks. Well, you and learned also something. You. It sounds like we're similar in that way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to ask people what they're like as what they were like as a creative child. Well, the story I usually tell is that, musically anyway, um, when I was a little kid, I have these memories of um, playing on the floor while my mom was practicing her flute. She's a flutist. And okay. I, uh, I I guess I fancied myself as a composer before maybe I even knew what that yeah. meant. I would lie on the floor and I would draw circles and lines on blank staff paper and then I would hand the paper to my mom and say, ask her to play my composition love and how old were you like oh i don't know four like five, five yeah. something like that you know does it it's that moment where you start getting like a a vague sense of who you are and what you like yes oh my gosh i love more than anything talking about like childhood identity mm -hmm. it's my favorite favorite topic um follow-up question before i ask more questions about that is your mom, I don't really know. I don't know that I've ever met her. I know her name is Corey. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, is she, was she like a, a professional flautist? Well, uh, she's a very skilled flutist. She okay. taught, she was, she taught private, privately for years and years and years in okay. the home where we grew up. And she would play in, um, you know, like community orchestras okay. and things like that. So and like would a, win a quintets serious... with your father-in-law. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with Gary. 
Yeah, Gary, and I was going to say, it's another thing that's in common with Gary and Andrew is like, great musicians chose science. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It kind of so, makes sense. But she was like a serious musician. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. if not like you know, professional well, in growing sense up, of income or something. My mom was, so teacher, my, so. yeah, so my mom was classically trained okay. and loves, I would say kind of like refined music, art music. Okay. And so she would expose us to that on purpose all the time. And we'd drive around town listening to classical radio and she would say, now what instrument is that? Cool. And, and so we had this kind of, um, that kind that half of our musical education. And my dad is actually a really terrific um, singer and grew up singing in choirs and doing musical theater and community theater and things. Oh, wow. And he provided the other half of our music education, which was Billy Joel and James Taylor cool. in Kansas. And cool. I think they, they both intersected at Joni Mitchell. Mm. Um, That's a good place to intersect. Yeah, yeah. So when you were little and you were starting to like when you were doing doing your first little compositions and having your mom play them, do you, can you do you know and like memory is quite fickle, but do you know whether those things were like what percentage of that was kind of like an Andrew thing and how much of it was like maybe your mom being like, write me something. Yeah. Well, that kind of stuff is always blurry. And I think about, I think about that with my own kids now because I look at them and so my boys are seven and nine and they're in that sort of formative, um, stage where they're trying to, they're starting to discover the things that they, they love. And, you know, sometimes I think like, you know, how much do I encourage this? Like how much fuel do you pour on the fire before it becomes my idea versus his totally. their ideas whatever so it's a little bit hard to tease apart but I remember uh going to an orchestra for a young audiences concert with my mom so she must have taken me yeah you know, there was a deliberate level like, of exposure going on ticket purchasing and yeah, yeah you know the way that parents do with their kids but also an organic um type of interest within the kid. Anyway, we went to the concert and I came out and I said, mom, I want to be the guy with the stick. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the the conductor, right? Yeah. And I don't know if that was like an ego thing for me or if the conductor is just this uh, focal point for the person sitting in the, in the, the audience, but I got piano lessons. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. To help. That, that was yeah. that was my mom's Out way of, of saying, yeah. well, I don't have any idea how to turn you into conductor, but let's start with piano lessons. Yeah, yeah, that's and, great. And, you know, it, it started from there when I was five or six or whatever it was. Yeah, one of my sort of theories is that, like, because I, I like to think a lot about the origins of creativity and kind of what we can do to encourage it, what kinds of things maybe tend to discourage it, uh, where kind of like what part resilience plays or like what we can do to kind of cultivate resilience. And one of, one of my theories after, you know, doing over a hundred of these interviews and talking to a lot of creatives is that I think one of the things that makes a difference is what our, what our own sense of ownership over it is as a child. Cause I think if you have a very creative parent or set of parents or teachers um, who are exposing you to a lot, you still might just not care, you know, or yeah. like you might kind of just feel like, Oh, this is just an activity. Um, and if you have parents that are very discouraging, but you still kind of feel like, you know, have us have like a, 
your young identity sort of feeling like, well, I am, I am an artist. Um, sometimes I think that this like self-identifying as a creative person or um, having some ownership over like the the work that you're making, mm-hmm. like a like a, a respecting of your own like nascent works. Is yeah, kind of an, I think that what you're saying piece. really is interesting. When I, I certainly um, words I never heard from my parents were, "What are you gonna do with that? Teach." Yeah, good. And <laughs> to their credit, my. And I sometimes I don't know why, because maybe they should have steered us in more practical directions. Yeah. But my parents were nothing but supportive from day wow. one. And I don't think it was because they imagined us growing up to be, you know, uh, uh, professional artists on yeah. big stages or something. There was just something, mm, I don't know, genuinely supportive about yeah. their their vibe, I think. And, uh, so from the first uh, talking about the emergence of like a creative self and ownership of one's work and identity and things like that, from the earliest memories that I have, whenever we, meaning my siblings and I, whenever we had creative intentions or ideas, my parents were generally responding with something like, cool how can we help yeah 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 and i think that that goes a long way simple i don't know why this is so complicated like (laughs) i was thinking about this maybe talking about it with um another guest like a couple weeks ago um you know i we as a culture when children say, you know, I want to be a professional football player or if I want to be an astronaut or a paleontologist or even like, I don't know, a brain surgeon, we don't tell children like, well, that's probably not going to happen. Even though like all of those things are things that probably won't happen. We only do this for the arts, which I think is absurd. It doesn't take, it doesn't take that much to just say to your like sparkly child, like, how can I help? Or like, cool, good idea. I'm so happy you're like passionate about this. Yeah. Well, with my own kids, we have a phrase, if in doubt, try it out. Yeah. And then there's usually a little bit of a caveat, like unless it's illegal or, or fa- so fatal or, or mortally stupid yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, um, <laughs> You know, the, the probability of becoming an astronaut is probably about the same as, um, what, having an opera at the Met or something right. like that, right? Yeah. But the probability of doing either of those things, if you stop, your, if you if you halt your aspirations in their place when you're six years old, then the probability is definitely zero. It's so ridiculous to me. I can't understand why we're like, you know, if you have a child that has like these huge aspirations of being an astronaut you kind of i feel like adults sort of think like now oh, they'll figure it out and maybe they'll you know do something else but we 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 specifically will like discourage creativity in little kids in a way that makes like absolutely no sense to me well i think that's the the puzzle is that creativity doesn't inherently make sense it's not a mm-hmm. it's not a um you know, ones and zeros, this adds up to a career and a retirement plan and a blah, I mean, blah, 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 blah. Except for the fact that like 
those people that make the ones and zeros really need to be creative as well. Oh, sure. Well, <laughs> I mean, unless you want an entire generation of automaton technicians, you need people that have uh, right. an awareness of their inner life and a depth to their yeah. human characteristics and their spiritual dimensions and their right. capacity for delight and observation and gee whiz, what a waste of time all that stuff is. You know, it's totally, but, yeah. but it's, I'm, you know, it's preaching to the choir, but, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like to think that there is another group listening who, you know, maybe I sometimes I think like if I is because I, I had really unsupportive parents. You've probably heard me talk about it a little bit, maybe not. But um, my parents are, were both just phenomenally unsupportive. Mm. Um, and uh, I think sometimes if I had had some language as a child to. I don't know, support myself better or maybe try to explain um, it would have been helpful to me. Well, I think what happens is that, um, you know, parents are always older than their kids. We can, we know that yeah. much. And <laughs> we can count on that. We can count on that. <laughs> and one of the things that uh, you get hammered with as you get older is um, not even intentionally on the part of other people, but just you, you sort of get, by living, you get hammered by statistics. You're like, oh, yeah, probability of me going up in that rocket. That is so low. Never mind the fact that I love it or that I'm super good at astrophysics or whatever. You just get kind of hammered by the the statistics of reality. And, uh, you know, I think that wears on everybody. But I I feel like some people feel like they're doing their kids a favor by sparing them the disappointment of not, you know, you know, not achieving their impossible dreams or whatever. But I think that misses the point sometimes because... All the time it misses the point. Y- yeah. 100% yeah. of the time it misses the point. Right, because I think that there's... Um, that creative spark is really essential to... Um, like joy. Well, joy <laughs> and also like finding your own unique contribution to totally. the world. And you don't have to be painting things that get totally. hung in the, in the Louvre or something like that. Yeah. Or, in order to make a contribution, but sometimes a creative expression is just learning how to perceive. And then you use Absolutely. your ability to perceive in every other thing. That Everything. You do in life. Yeah. I talk about this on the podcast all the time. It's like my other favorite subject besides like childhood creative resilience or childhood like identity. But you know, the idea that when we work on these creative skills and we cultivate these creative skills, they give us the tools to be better people. You know, they give us the tools to innovate and, um, you know, to, to, broaden our perspectives to understand other people to learn to be empathic um i think those are all kind of like those are all creative skills just to like see other options other pathways you know fully divorced from like the fine arts as they are yeah um yeah i think sometimes the fine arts do themselves a disfavor by getting so caught up in themselves yeah and it reinforces the perception that they are fancy pants stuff for somebody else. Sure. Rather than opening that, um, opening up the pathway for ordinary people to say, oh, wait, I get it. Everybody 
is creative at some level and there's a reason for creativity because living yeah. from day to day, particularly as social beings who try to organize themselves, yeah. um, is a creative activity. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like are the fine arts like the end or a means to an end? <laughs> like, you know, I'm sure there are like valid perspectives sure. in either case. Well, what's the difference between fine arts and folk art? I mean, art is art. And I feel like the good art gives you a window into glimpses of your best self sure. of possible way forward. And, uh, you know, that, that can come you know, from folksy art as much as it does totally. from a, well, a life spent pursuing technique in a fine art or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Like, well, and even just like, you know, I think one thing that a lot of us who went to college for art, any kind of creative, any kind of art, um, have to at some point grapple with like the hard skills that we're developing, like our actual technical skills and like these very abstract, like perspective building skills, um, those are difficult things. Um, along those lines, can you talk to me about like your development in your like later childhood and teens? Um, maybe as it pertains to like starting to have like more rigorous study versus, you know, what kind of play and like imagination was going on? Yeah. Well, that hits right at that intersection of sure does technique as a pathway to making to creative work. Yeah. Right. Well, I think lots of times as children, my, I have another theory that we sometimes, we put these in different mediums, you know, mm -hmm. and then they converge mm -hmm. as we get older. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what was it like for you? Well, when I started with piano lessons, um, I don't think I ever once stopped thinking of myself as a composer, as a, cool. a maker of stuff. But it, at a certain point, you know, you start, you spend a lot of time practicing yeah. and practicing things like scales and increase repertoire of increasing yeah. difficulty Developing and you're playing like with dexterity them. versus. Yeah. You're playing with a metronome and yeah. you're getting ready for recitals. And some of that honestly becomes very, um, not creative. Totally. I think that was my point before. Like, and I think a lot of us get kind of not creative. Yeah. Like at certain points in our creative endeavors. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, in a skill, uh, full time symphony uh, musicians often have low job satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And um, if you think about it, you know, it, it isn't a particularly creative outcome sometimes. Yeah, uh, sure. They're, told what to wear, when to, where to sit, when to show up, when to leave. And yeah. you put all of the dots in front of them and get told how to play them. Yeah. You know, technique doesn't always track with creativity, but oftentimes it needs to. Totally. Of course. And so, um, that's the means to the end. I yeah, think like yeah. we work on these. But until you're, you're a creative person. Yeah. You're a writer. <laughs> you're, you're inventing things. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think there's a lot of happy people that uh, develop technique that do things that aren't inherently creative. Yeah. And that's okay. I be, I feel like I don't always understand that perspective because that's not where I'm, where I've been coming from mm -hmm. since I was five. Yeah. But I get it. And, but, uh, but as for me, when I was taking piano lessons and putting my hours in for technique, um, it was always in service of doing the creative stuff that was interesting to me. And so yeah. while I was 
practicing for my piano recitals, I was, you know, transcribing Billy Joel albums yeah. and figuring out how to play those cool sounding things that were interesting to me. Yeah. And by the time I was, I'm going to say like 11 or something, we discovered my mom's acoustic guitars. Cool. And we is you Stuart and, Stuart. and I primarily. Okay. Kate, my sister Caitlin, who um, now people know as a visual a artist, visual artist yeah. grew up um, also being a really talented flutist. She's a very fine cool. flutist. I follow her on Instagram. You and everybody and else. I'd really like to interview <laughs> her too. Yeah. <laughs> She's well, on my list. Um, so we... Uh, so by the t- we discovered these guitars, they at the time they were in their hard cases up in my grandparents' basement. Okay. And for whatever reason, I think my mom hadn't played for long enough, and maybe we little kids were too ruckus around breakable objects that she yeah. wouldn't want to have them sure. there anyway. So we, we found these guitars, and we're just like, Mom. Excuse me, Mom? Do you play the guitar? <laughs> and... And so we brought them down to our house from my grandparents' house, and she started teaching me all the chords. Wow. And so then I was, uh, you know, transcribing songs on guitar, and, you know, it doesn't take very long to start playing the opening lick to Sweet Home Alabama. And, you know, one thing leads to another. And then I bought my, I think I was 13, and I bought my first electric guitar. Wow. And convinced Stuart to buy an electric bass. Cool. And you're, then you're the oldest. I'm right? the oldest. Okay, yeah. I'm, the, I'm I just turned 41 this week. Oh my week. gosh, how exciting! <laughs> oh, oh, oh yes, <laughs> aging nothing just kind of cool. sounds better than 41. Oh, I really like it. I find I'm finding that I really enjoy getting older. Wow, I mean, you're not gonna that have, I'm. You'll have to teach me because I 41. I mean, it is a prime number, and that's cool, but. <laughs> otherwise, it just sounds kind uh, of. 40's the new 30, Andrew. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? I've heard. <laughs> I'm just not feeling Humans it. Humans are living longer every year. Yeah. And we're vibrant and we're full of life. I am. Redefining culture. I am vibrant and full of life. You and are. I am redefining culture right now. Anyway, I so are. I bought an electric guitar and convinced Stuart to buy the bass. And then, and, and he will point out, it's like, well, that's how I started on the bass instead of the guitar. Andrew bullied me into yeah, it. Yeah, yes. Yeah, there's always this like <laughs> older brother problem in, in the storytelling. But anyway, so we started a rock band as love 13 year olds because his friend Joe played the drums kind of. Cool. And so we had this parallel track where we were always writing and inventing along one track. And then on the other track, he was practicing his violin like a crazy little Suzuki kid. I was practicing piano. Caitlin was practicing flute. And later, our fourth sibling, Colin, who who was much younger than us and always gets forgotten, but not in this podcast. Yeah, not in this podcast. Not right now. I gotta be honest, I didn't know about him. Colin's awesome. He is the lacrosse coach at UVU. Oh, wow. So you're actually crossing paths. Yeah, with all of your people. Wow, think about that. I do. I brought it up earlier. And he was a good cellist (laughs) as a teenager. Anyway, point is, we were all woodshedding on technique. Yeah. And I don't know if that, that path was inherently creative, but we had a creative path that was completely organic that came from us. Yeah. 
that our parents were always supportive of. Okay, I have a couple of questions. This like Suzuki like practicing. How much like? Do you think it's possible, or I don't know? I guess I don't want to ask this as a yes or no question. But like, what are your thoughts as to how much like family culture versus you know studio culture versus the child's personality allows for you know the motivation to and like execution of just practicing just kind of these like rote like you know somewhat tedious perhaps like how do we do it how do we like get children to do it well i think that achieving fabulous technique is a little bit like pushing a giant boulder up to the top of a hill and then and then at a certain point it can pick up momentum and kind of coast down into the next I'm valley or whatever. I'm finding it interesting that like all four of you practiced that way and it sounds like mostly maybe joyfully more more or less joyfully. Well, I don't know. I don't want to like uh, romanticize it but when I talk yeah. about pushing a boulder that's going to take a lot of effort and the effort has to come from somewhere and yeah. it can be a team effort like you know a li- partly, fr- partly from kid yeah. partly from studio and teacher culture partly yeah. from parent if the kid is I don't know sort of like un- you know has a motivational level that I never had that you know comes from some you know directly from God or something like that, then maybe it's just all you need is that kid and just yeah. everybody else gets out of the way. But I, I think it's some combination. And so growing up, I think especially when we were younger and forming those patterns for practicing, there was a lot of moms sitting on the piano bench yeah. or sitting next Helping. to the violin or flute or whatever. And she, my mom is an incredibly supportive uh, mom and you know I don't think any of us would play well at all if she hadn't sat with us can you give any insight as to how she was able to like motivate you and encourage you to practice without it being like you know toxic and a chore and yeah I I mean it's funny because I look back and I don't remember it being toxic and a chore although I'm certain that we but well, I we, just mean you know so, what we, I'm certain we yeah, bet, we butted sure. heads at some point, right? But she did the usual things like sticker charts and things in in yeah, tandem with with the yeah. with the teachers, and um, I think kids are good at moving from one breadcrumb to the next breadcrumb, yeah. and sometimes the big picture is distracting and overwhelming, and so it's just yeah. like you know, hey, let's just do this today, and then tomorrow we'll right. focus on tomorrow, and oh, it's so interesting to me. Like, I also have, I'm the oldest of four as well. Mm-hmm. And my, there's a 13 year span between the oldest and the youngest. What's, how? Same. Yeah. So that's same, the same. oldest three kids, myself, Stuart, Caitlin, we, there was about two years in between each of us. And then there's an eight year gap. And so I'm 13 years older than Colin. Okay. It's like exactly the same. Yeah. And um, for, of my siblings, I'm the only one who like still really does music. I have a brother who just started med school who, has a keyboard in his apartment and still plays piano a bit. But I, as a teacher and I don't have children, so I don't have this data point, but as a teacher, I think about this a lot. And 
when I was a child, like there was definitely, my mom was definitely involved in the sense of like practicing your piano every day was like a, like a chore. It was like, this Mm. is like a thing you do. Like you brush Mm. your teeth, you practice the piano and that was enforced. Like, um, like any chore would be, it was like, you're, you have to practice the piano. Did you practice the piano? If you didn't, you can't go play or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that was, I think very consistent, but for all four kids, but I was definitely motivated in a different way, like inherently than my siblings. And I just, I, I don't know. I'm, but feel curious about these things. And especially in a family where all four kids are managing to continue practicing, uh, you know, What's going on? Well, I remember... <laughs> a, genetic? Yeah, I remember a quote from <laughs> Nadia Boulanger, the m- French music pedagogue, that yeah. I will mangle and paraphrase. But she, she said something like, talent, uh, meaning like uh, skill. Yeah, yeah. Skill or technique. Uh, skill without genius is very little, mm-hmm. but genius without skill is nothing at all. Mm. And I think what that the reason that relates in my mind to what you're saying is that you can teach anybody some level of technique. You can yeah. get them to move their fingers in a prescribed way. I mean, we do this with handwriting. We do this with t- shoe tying and things like that, yeah. and that's fine. But that little spark of what she would call genius or the sort of like internal... Um, intuition spark just like uh, enjoyment even like fascination whatever that thing is you can't fabricate it and um you know it's been a challenge in with my own kids because so far neither one of them has any interest in music and they've Mm -hmm. fought every attempt Mm -hmm. interesting that we've made to introduce them Wow. to music both uh, i mean they they like listening to yeah. songs like kids do but don't have that little sparkle not yet you yeah. know but on the other hand my older son has gotten really into theater cool. and as, as a total surprise to me and yeah. so i'm looking at it and thinking okay well i can force piano lessons down his throat and make it a daily battle yeah which doesn't feel like it's destined for success or I can listen to this little organic spark in him about what he does love and I can try to nurture and support that totally yeah even even as a even as a teacher I feel like you know when I'm teaching voice which is a little bit different it's 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 arguably much more flexible than piano Mm. um and I feel like as a teacher, I'm always looking for like the thing that's giving my students that little spark. And mm. it might be like working on a certain type of technique. Like they might be totally lit up by just the mechanics of their instrument, you know? Yeah. And um, seeing how different types of drills will train their muscles in a way that will allow for an enchanting result. Um, and then, you know, some of my students, like maybe they're just really interested in harmony and like, we're, you know, we're going to take a totally different route. But I, I tend to feel like I tend to think, and this is probably just like my own kind of like optimistic personality and character, but I tend to always assume that there's going to be like something, some angle that will kind of elicit that little bit of like, you know, you can kind of see it in their like eyebrows. 
Yeah. Like, oh yeah. The, and that yeah. kind of moment is so, so exciting. Yeah. Um, I just read Stephen King's, um, memoir called on writing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a, I haven't read it, but a few of my guests have talked about yeah, it. Yeah. I am not a, like a horror movie book kind of person. So I, I would not, I just probably won't ever pick up any of his other books, but his, that book had been recommended so many times that yeah. I thought, okay. What know, did you like? What, what do you I want should, to say about I it? I should read this. Well, he talks about the, the craft of writing and the, the sort of the storyteller's job in a way that I really like, which is he uses this metaphor of being kind of a, like a, an archeologist mm-hmm. And, you know, your first job is to be paying attention and yeah. to be showing up at the, at the page, so to speak. But then once you notice a little uh, fossil, a little bone sticking out of the mm-hmm. ground, your job is to unearth it. And he has this idea that, which I think is appropriate, this kind of like modest attitude towards the creative process, which is that these, you know, stories just sort of exists almost outside of you yeah and your job is to notice that little fragment of a bone that's sticking out of the ground and then carefully start unearthing it yeah but he made the point of saying that sometimes you just get a fragment and it doesn't amount to much sometimes you get a single you know like a single bone and it turns into a little bit of a short story or something but then sometimes you unearth an entire an entire skeleton and oh my gosh wow you've you've created a novel or a screenplay or something yeah but it's um it's having this kind of reverence for the fact that so much of what you discover really does come from outside of you and your job is to be this sort of participant in the process i think the same I think it relates to this idea of helping kids because um, we don't know that, like when you're taking on new students who like to sing along with Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift or Disney Mm-hmm. or whatever. It's not that anymore. It's Taylor Swift. Oh, yeah. Well, my kids think that this Disney Descendants is cool. I don't know what that it's is. It's terrible. Oh. Well, it's interesting. I've never heard of it. It just shows how disconnected I am from the Disney that I thought of in the 90s. But the point is, like, when you get kids, you don't know at any point whether you're unearthing a, a little fragment or a, a tiny bone or a mm-hmm. whole scale or a whole fossil or mm-hmm. whatever. And I think for some kids you know, some music training opens their ears, period. And that's just cool. Yeah, yeah. To some some of them, it opens um, their ears and their technique, either on their voice or on an an external (laughs) instrument that they manipulate with their fingers or whatever. But but it, it might be just a source of, you know, personal artistic, release or catharsis or something. And for some, they might end up on the stage of the Met someday. And wouldn't that be cool? But you just, you never know. And it, and it's, I think what, what doesn't work is to go into any kind of creative process, whether it's you're creating something or you're exploring the potential of a student with a whole load of assumptions and templates and things like that. Of course. Yeah. you, You just, you just never know. Sure. Okay. My next question. Uh, when you were like starting your little rock band at age 13, did you ever feel like, like, did you ever feel like you, 
I mean, okay, I'm guessing you didn't feel like you needed any kind of permission. If so, like, how? Where did you kind of like get that, you know, gumption to be like, yeah, I'm 13 and I'm just going to do this because like, what did it feel like from your perspective? Well, that's a, yeah, permission is such an interesting idea because I think I've struggled with that more post-college. It's Partially because of college. Yeah. Than I did when I was 13. And what I'm doing now is trying in a lot of ways to get back to that organ- organic, effortless. Just following your interest to an end. Following that inner creative child thing. Because when yeah. I was, a, I had an electric guitar, but I didn't even have a guitar, guitar case. So I took the cloth laundry bag that had little handles off yeah. of the hamper <laughs> structure. And I stuck my guitar in it and wrapped the handles over my arms like kind of like a backpack yeah. and i rode my bike you know however to band practice to band <laughs> practice at kevin Desay's house my best <laughs> friend then and we're and we sort of uh became friends again as grown-ups great and you see my parents were like yeah 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 and kevin's dad played in rock bands in oh. the 70s so you had a template you had a bit of a template and we went in, in kevin's basement you have to imagine opening up a guitar case and finding a Gibson ES-335 wow. and a bass case that had a Fender Jazz bass in it. Oh, wow. And not only was it like, th- it was like the toolbox, but it also was implicit permission. Like, right? yeah. This is, an, this is a respected adult in my community who of has course, these things. Of course we're going right. to play in a rock band. You yeah. know what I mean? And we were terrible, but we it was the pure joy of just trying to yeah. like make stuff yeah yeah and y- and you never did you ever like internally have any sort of doubt of like maybe uh, this isn't an identity that i'm allowed to inhabit or anything like that i really didn't and i cool. feel like kids Great. kids don't i don't think that kids are born with those kind of doubts those doubts of course not yeah come from you know the statistics of growing up or they come like directly from your parents yep i get it (laughs) i get it and i or directly from all of your peers all of your peers oh yeah yeah yeah, for sure because listen the first song that you write is gonna suck the first song that you perform for your friends yeah is gonna sound amateurish yeah and the the problem is of course that people spend all their time listening and watching the finished products of established artists. Yeah. And it's really easy to, to notice the gap between, you know, this, you know, crappy yeah. song that your friend just played you and the thing that you're hearing on the radio. What's hard is sustaining the, the effort to close the gap between the thing that you're making today and the very best thing that you're capable of making. Well, I feel like that's even only half of the problem. The other part of it is we have a really hard time just observing someone's um, works like divorced from social proof. So... I think like if you're looking at someone who's maybe they're maybe they are doing like excellent work, but they're not like getting, I don't know, like external validation. Sure. It's easy. It's I think we're I think we're kind of bad in our culture at just looking at something and saying, like, do I think this is good? We feel like we need authorities to tell us it's good. 
Well, we're I I mean we're all human, you know, and I feel yeah. like it's it's a very human tendency to engage in comparisons first. Uh, you can't avoid doing that, and then also trying to understand to while you're to to evaluate things based on a kind of a constellation of reference points, comparisons with other things that we're familiar with, the opinions of other people that we trust or think we should trust or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I was convinced that I didn't like Mahler long before I ever heard mm. Mahler. Interesting. Why? Just cause That's he, so random. Like, well, Mahler's long and yeah. I don't know, tedious wow. and thick and you hear all these kind of descriptions and then I, and then you sit and, you know, the orchestra hall and you hear Mahler's fifth and you say, oh, this is really good. Yeah. Well, I even just think of like, you know, like I think about our friend Ryan Innes playing piano in the montage lobby mm-hmm. and how many people walked by and, and wondering like, you know, I think a lot about you could walk by and be like, wow, this is a world-class voice and how beautiful and how lucky are we that he's here. Or you could walk by and think like the fact that this person is playing here in Ute- in Park City and not in New York is proof that it's not really valuable. And yeah. I, I find that a lot of people nowadays take that kind of ladder approach in a way that bums me out. Oh, I get it. I get it. I mean, there was that great um, little thing hosted by the Washington Post where Joshua Bell right. played his violin right. in the subway. It's a perfect example. You know, dressed like nobody special. And just, yeah. um, And most people walk by because most people, you, you just know, think like, oh, are on their way someplace someone, thinking about something else. Or they might be thinking, like, the fact that this person is busking means that they aren't good. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think a lot of people think like that. Yeah, for but sure. But I also think, like, it takes it takes creativity to go like, whoa, here I am in the subway, and this is some of the most beautiful violin playing I've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, I've thought about that ever since I watched the video of him playing and read the accompanying article and thought about the fact that only a few people stopped. And um, when I was living in Boston, there'd be people busking in the subway every day. Yeah. And well, and we know that a lot of the times people who are busking in the subway are really, really good musicians. Sure. That's something sure. that like you and I would know because we know those people. Yeah. Well, so my, but it's a cultural, um, it's, it, it reads culturally as like a, um, I don't know, low somehow. Yeah, maybe. But you know, so my, uh, the, the thing that I don't, admit in art art in my arts circles is that I went to business school because that totally confuses people. But I, I did an MBA in arts administration back in 2012. And we spent a lot of time studying audience behavior and mm. trying to understand Interesting. what makes people show up and what their actual experience is like. And the thing that's devastating to us artists, and I feel like I can take off my arts hat and put on my business hat sometimes or you know you swap them back probably very should every well every artist has to but you know the thing that was devastating for the artists is that a lot of people um evaluate buying tickets to the symphony like this well let's go out for dinner and should we go to a movie 
or to the symphony. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a thing to do. Yeah. And it doesn't make them bad or less perceptive or something like that. It's I think it's just a window into the fact that there's really a host of criteria that people use to evaluate their engagement with creative work. Um, and some of it makes no sense to artists because if I, I think about, you know, uh, you know, choosing between a movie and the symphony, it's like, well, you know, it's like, do I want to eat a used tire or a delicious meal? Like to me, those seem like such yeah. completely, you, know, you can't compare them. But I think people walking by the subway might be thinking they might have, um, you know, Kanye on their headphones. Yeah. And they see some guy sawing away out of violin and they'd probably think, oh, that sounds like really old. Yeah, <laughs> you sure, know? sure. Because, yeah. it's a, because Bach is in a way kind of a rarefied thing. And, and maybe you have to sit with it for a while before you can even appreciate that, A, um, you know, a solo partita is an absolutely incredible construction akin to any of the best architecture from the last two millennia B that Joshua Bell playing it in a subway tunnel. He's playing with technique that is probably unmatched in the world, in the world. Yeah. And you know, you just go down this list of things that would have to be true for you to have that kind of transcendent experience. And for 99 out of 100 people walking through the subway tunnel that day, they didn't have enough of those things to be true. But the people who did and who stopped knew something was really special. Yeah. And they and they just allowed themselves to absorb it. But I don't, I guess I, I don't, having spent enough time kind of like puzzle, puzzling, that, yeah. puzzling over the behavior of people who aren't artists. Yeah. I don't, I guess I don't spend so much time now worrying about like, oh, well, they, you know, they weren't. I think I worry about it because of this thing we were talking about earlier of like, there's, you know, who's an artist based on who does these technical things and who devotes their life to it. And who, you know, can we just be artful thinkers and artful people? Yeah. And it feels to me like, like I can think of it as like this problem you know, whatever. But I also think it's a problem of like, it's a cultural problem. (laughs) Like if we all were like more artful thinkers, Mm -hmm. regardless of how we spend our days, we could probably more, a higher percentage of us could recognize Joshua Bell. And also maybe a higher percentage of us could like recognize, you know, uh, problems with structures of power or, Oh yeah. 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 Well, I think that's a great point. I actually just, uh, I mean, maybe a year ago read this wonderful book called shop class as soul craft Mm. by Matthew Crawford. And he's a, he's, I guess, literally a philosopher as a PhD in philosophy, whatever, but he's also has, uh, been a motorcycle, motorcycle mechanic for years and years. And he, he talked about the, this kind of, um, paradox in our culture where, especially since the um, kind of the silent, you know, the World War II generation, we've really, really prized um, college educations and white collar jobs and, um, you know, sort of success with this capital S kind of thing. And at the same time, we've demoted the trades, we've demoted... Um, the arts because they don't all lead obviously to money. But his point was very interesting because he talks about 
um, the the direct the the way to become a really good motorcycle mechanic is to learn the technique of it directly by doing the thing by putting your hands on it. You don't go to you don't learn some universal theory yeah. of motorcycles in order to yeah. repair a motorcycle. You get you start with the specific and you begin to sort of extrapolate extrapolate general like principles. A model. Yeah. And you become really good at systems thinking mm. and perception and understanding not by dwelling in the abstract yeah. with spreadsheets and stuff like that, but by being hands-on with the these components. And the thing that was interesting to me was that he was talking with all of this detail about motorcycle mechanic yeah. stuff, stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, in the same way that you and I are talking about like being artful yeah. interesting from an artistic discipline yeah. because in a certain way, technique is technique. And you, when you engage in the process of caring about something and and putting your hands on it or working with your voice day in and day out and building from the inside, from the specifics of your interests and your discipline through the pathway of technique into sort of a more generalized expertise, you become perceptive, you be, you're a better listener and thinker, you think about systems and relationships yeah. and all the things that you were describing. Right. And I, I grant that other people have similar experiences through things like repairing motorcycles that I don't relate to because that's not my jam, but, but they can have sort of an artful attitude. Even just what you said, like engage with the process of caring about something like that's probably like, that's the pull quote. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing that, but yeah, I mean, I, I really agree. Like I was even just thinking like, I was thinking this week because I, I teach I teach a really long day on Tuesdays. I teach like all of my UVU students and I, I also teach like the performance class to like all of the commercial voice majors and then I teach an ensemble too. So it's like a it's like a long day of like um different kinds of teaching like within this one discipline and you know, so as I'm like, you know, going like walking to the bathroom in between my lessons and kind of just like thinking, mm-hmm. I was thinking this week like how can I teach my students some, you know, something that's always been a bit intuitive to me, which is like this idea that the rehearsal should feel like as delicious as the performance, like, like sitting in this room or like in the lesson, like when we're like discovering a new piece of music together, like we should be feeling this, like this beauty of the piece of music, like as much or even even maybe more kind of preciously and intimately than we would in a performance. Um, I, I don't know what my point is other than I think it's that. Like, the point is to care about it. Like, the point mm-hmm. is to value these little tiny pieces and, and thinking like that, I don't know. Like, I, I know that, like, I use that same skill when I'm at the grocery store, like, having a fleeting little, you know, often quite beautiful conversation with the cashier. Yeah. You know, I, so in 2017 and 2018, I, I spent two summers um, studying in Paris at the um, EMA, E-A-M-A, uh, Nadia Boulanger Institute. And my teacher there, who's become, I think, probably my closest mentor um, musically in my life, is named Philip Lasser. He's a wonderful person. But when he describes, when he's teaching people to compose 
he never talks about it that way. Yeah. He, you know, we use disciplines like counterpoint and harmony, but he always says it comes back to the art of listening. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that I noticed after spending time with him and his mentor, Narcisse Bonnet, who was Nadia Boulanger's kind of right-hand man for years, um, was they are exquisite listeners. Mm-hmm. And I would bring a composition, like an art song, and sit down with Philip, and he would give it his complete attention. Wow. And I was almost impatient. You know, yeah. I was thinking, uh, shouldn't we just get on to the double bar and and you know be done with it kind of this almost like this kind of industrial capitalist mentality yeah. of like let's Ugh. you know let's we're, yeah. we're we're just on our way to the profit margin here let's just get get this over with which is yeah. really i think that kind of like cultural it's that like internalized capitalism yeah and i, I you know listen i went to business school and capitalism uh i'm all for an efficient market driven allocation of goods sure, and services. We could use a little balance, however. But, but, um, w- watch, spending time with him was so interesting because he would, he would be playing and singing and thinking through this thing that I had written and he would just pause and you could see him just kind of thinking for a little bit and he'd say, you know, this this sonority strikes me a little bit sour in this moment. I think it's because we're still hearing such and such a pitch from the previous right. bar. Let me play that again to you and see if you hear it that way. Yeah. And I'll tell you, after studying with him now for five years or whatever, I'm a better listener. Wow. And I think it transfers. I think it's more than just listening to music. And when I teach... Um, How could it not? I think I'm a better listener. But, um, you know, being a good listener, it doesn't matter if I'm a professional composer. Being a good listener uh, matters across the board. And I think, you know, getting back to like the the creative and artful engagement with life and learning how to pay attention to things and care about stuff. That's those are foundational benefits of of art that's why I think it matters and like I I've I'm a broken record about this I talk about it all the time but like you know I've chosen to interview artists because like this is a language that I know better um as much as sometimes when I interview like visual artists I'm like I don't I don't know the words (laughs) I feel very inadequate um but I'm fully aware that like a mechanic is also very creative and the longer that I do that I have these conversations with people the more that I even, I start feeling very, very foggy about the line between like art and other things, art and craft. Um, But yeah, I mean, I, I'll say a million times, I'm sure I'll never stop that the the reason it matters is so that we can engage like as humans in our lives. Um, I, I think I tend to think that as people, as adults who have devoted our lives and a, and a big percentage of our, our time to creative efforts, we have some, like, we have some insight into these things um, that, I, that I think is like the thing that's valuable <laughs> more sure. so than, you know, the paintings that we make or the poems that we write or whatever. Yeah, Philip makes the point that the there's certain there's a certain kind of um, 
paradox. Maybe I've used that word twice. I shouldn't do that. But anyway, I didn't he, notice he, the first one. So. Anyway, he <laughs> he points out that you know style, this idea that uh, you know composers, for example, have a personality and original style and all this kind of stuff. That's like an outside. That's something that you notice from the outside, and that we're we as listeners, we as viewers, we as people in general are really concerned about originality and style. And it's kind of like this surface glitz. Mm. And he said, the irony is that if you want style, focus on craft, mm. which is meaning like just go deeper and deeper into the your, your ability to perceive and control the underlying yeah. musical material. And I think that that is is a good reminder to all of us that um, there's the surface level stuff that you can see. And we all think creativity and originality are important. But I think what it is, is that p- there's, there's people who discover that it is inherently rewarding to sort of submit yourself to the process yeah. of getting good at a craft. Yeah. And in a way, you know, like Bach is rumored to have said, uh, um, cobblers make shoes i make cantatas he had sort of a um a nonplussed kind of uh un what sort of like um, non not precious uh, yeah not precious yeah. attitude towards his own creative yeah. work it's like you know a you know a really fine finished carpenter builds beautiful looking cabinets how yeah. well you you just you submit yourself to the process of caring about something and getting really good at it yeah. and that is inherently rewarding and i and i totally. hope that because I think our society favors this weird kind of like intellectual generalism in the pursuit of um, return on investment stuff. Yes, and it's 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 sort of like this like surface level dwelling where you're just sort of like you know water skiing. Yeah. But um, my experience with music is that the well is always deeper than I thought. Yes, and it's such a magical experience to go deeper and deeper and deeper you get under the surface of the water and it changes you as a person you care about what you're doing and you want to teach other people you want to share and it causes you to slow you slow down and notice things and uh you know well i think like everything you just said applies to people too like there's always more and and it also is quite magical. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just, I think about these things so much. And, and in my mind and in my life, they feel very, like, permeable. <laughs> like, yeah. like, they feel kind of one in the same. And, like, during the, the the days and weeks in my life that I feel the most creative, I also feel the most, like, in love with humanity. Oh, totally. And on the days and weeks in my life that I feel, like, kind of cold and boring, I feel grouchy and like impatient. Um, yeah, well, people. there's there, you know, Faulkner and Flannery O'Connor. They both said something to the effect that of like, I I don't know what I think about something until I see what I wrote. Mm. And I totally relate to that because I feel like half of my creative effort is an attempt to make sense of how I feel and and what I think <laughs> about the world around me yeah. and my own experience. And I, I really like, I don't know what I think until I see what I've written or created. Yeah. Yeah. And I relate to that too. It, it causes, you know, having a reflective practice 
which is what art is at yeah. some level. I yeah. mean, a certain slice of it is a reflective practice. Is just healthy for people. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about that thing that you just said of like, you don't know what you think about something until you write it? Um, how do you think about that with regards to like authenticity in your artistry? Um, well, authenticity is really interesting because... It is. Um, you know, getting back to the Stephen King memoir, he, uh, in, he sort of asked rhetorically... You know, once you've given yourself permission to to write and to chase those fossils, what are you going to write about? And he says, anything you damn well please, as long as you're honest. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's the only rule. Yeah. And I think authenticity is um, a commitment to honesty. Yeah. And it's served really well by a commitment to developing technique. Sure. Um. I've talked with a lot of people here in this room about this type of subject and a lot of my guests will, will say things like, you know, I don't think anybody really knows me until they've seen my choreography or, um, you know, my, uh, drawings that I do like represent a certain part of my personality that doesn't, it's like its own thing that maybe doesn't connect back to, you know, the other parts of me, which I think makes these questions of authenticity, like interesting and sometimes a bit fraught. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. I think what's interesting is that, um, I have spent a lot of time, um, learning, for example, jazz harmony. Yeah. But even after having done that and played the piano for years and years and years, I kind of freeze up when it's time to solo and improvise. Yeah. It's not my favorite thing. Same. And yet, if I sit there quietly to myself and compose, yeah. I can write pretty sweet you sounding can write harmonies jazz and solos. Things. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I think some people who master a language, for example, like you know, like a musical language, they feel like they are most authentic in the moment that they are freely improvising. Mm, I mm-hmm. think about like a Keith Jarrett or, 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 um, you know, who does these completely yeah, improv concerts, right? Yeah. Um, like it is th- the moment. And I feel like, you know, in the moment I can, I can usually be a pretty fun conversationalist, but if you ask, ask me, what do I really, really think about something? Chances are I'm going to want to sit there yeah. and write it. I'm like that too. And rewrite it until I feel like I know what I think or about have something. Like, for me, it'll be like have 12 conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sure. like each of those individual people that I talk to, like maybe the thing that I said in that conversation, like it's not the final thing that I think. Well, that's how... <laughs> I'm just like processing out loud. Yeah, I mean, that's how we discover what we think, I think, is it, yeah. it's it's worked out over time. And I, I write a lot of these sort of personal essays that I sometimes I share, sometimes I don't. And yeah. usually what they are is an attempt to understand what I think about something. And I feel like sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that's, um, you know, a day late and a dollar short with the clever rejoinder mm-hmm. or whatever. And, you know, I, I probably don't have a, a, a big future in politics <laughs> for, you know, being, you know, doing the stump speech and fielding... Yeah questions and things like this but 
Um, I love the reflective experience of having a question or a concern or an observation and then sitting with it until I can hit that intersection of like honesty and clarity with enough technique to, to show myself yeah. what I, I, what I think. I know that feeling exactly. I also have like a regular practice of writing personal essays. Um, like I write at least one a month. Like it's a, it's a, it's a ritual for me. Mm -hmm. And I feel the exact same way. Like it's, it's such a, it's such a, like a peaceful feeling having, thought about things sitting down to like really think about things you know because there's a difference maybe between like you're I'm going on a walk and like musing or I'm having a conversation absolutely and like sitting down to kind of like put actual you know phonemes together yeah absolutely <laughs> um and yeah I always feel like you know this kind of like dopamine rush of clarity like, yeah and it's interesting though because i think about my dad and um you know sitting down to write not one of his things but um to take a motorcycle part and put it all back together oh yeah yeah to build an exquisite wood fence with these elaborate arbors and these kinds of things that is his like zone. It's both expression and it's time to reflect and it's like, you know, it's, it's creative and constructive and he gets clarity from it. And I, I just think it's fascinating that there's so many different ways to, totally. uh, to do, to engage in that process more or less. Yeah. Okay. Let me know when you're ready to pick back up. Cause I, I, ha I remember what my question was. Oh, uh, good. Okay, rock okay. and roll. Let's do okay. it. I wanted to ask, um, were you always, like, high-minded about ki these kinds of things? Like, as a, as a child, did you like to, like, muse and philosophize on subjects? Uh, I was probably always long-winded. Sure. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I think when I was a kid, there wasn't the the meta... Really? I was kind of surprised to hear that. Where did it, how did, where did it come from? Well, I mean, I think I've always been a thoughtful person, but the like the reflection about like the creative process mm. itself and all that kind of stuff has come maybe post college. Um, I was doing music, sort of joyfully and constantly and creatively all the way through uh, finishing high school. Like I would, I started writing choral music in my my choir teacher, bless her heart, Ann Applegate, wonderful human being, she would just say, okay, we'll sing it. I love that. That's Isn't that also amazing? like, what a beautiful confluence once again of like permission and also like support. Like, oh, I yeah. mean, it's like the best of both. Like somehow at some point in your mind, you're like, I sing in a choir. I can write for this choir. Like that's a thought that I think a lot of young aspiring composers wouldn't have they would think it will be cool when someday there's a choir i can write for well i feel like i learned a little bit from my dad's example and he um as a uh business guy he mm -hmm. has been an entrepreneur for his whole career when we were when he was in college just when i was born he put himself through college by refinishing the hardwood floors and building yeah. a wow. flooring business and then later built a different business. And I think it's just a characteristic of Larry Maxfield that 
um, you don't stop a little, you know, you don't let a little ignorance or inconvenience get in your yeah. way. You just, you just throw yourself at a problem and it's going to sort itself out. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, he's, he probably exemplifies that more than anybody else I've ever met. Yeah. Um, and so for better or for worse, when I, when I was in yeah. acapella choir and I thought I'd like to write a piece for acapella choir, I just thought said it and suggested it and and thankfully Mrs. Applegate um said okay. Yeah. And so I think throughout growing up it was just this kind of I don't know um it wasn't premeditated and it wasn't like a philosophical exercise uh there wasn't this level of like dialogue about dialogue about dialogue I was just doing the thing cuz I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, when I went to college um, I was wandering around campus, taking every random course that interested and me. Was your undergraduate what major? What did you major in? <laughs> well, that was sort of That's the problem. Is I, I, I was just wandering around campus, like taking classes that interested me. Yeah. I probably missed some kind of like advising moment along sure. the way. <laughs> Accumulating <laughs> credits is basically what I was doing. Uh, I. Chinese and economics and comparative literature mm -hmm. and uh cool. you know yeah. you just sign up for things and I'll they let graduate you graduate at some point yeah maybe yeah. well <laughs> I I was trying on different majors for size and the um I lived in the same uh neighborhood as it turns out the guy that was in at the head of the commercial music program at the university okay and we went to church together and he got to know me and he said you know Andrew, it strikes me that you do a lot of music <laughs> and you do it pretty well. I was like, yeah, well, you know, that's the fun stuff on this, that's uh, the garnish on the side of uh, the responsible sounding thing mm -hmm. that you're supposed mm -hmm. to, you're supposed to do as a grown up when yeah. you go to college. I got really sold on this like responsibility notion. Yeah. That's it, very like LDS culture too. I think so. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, especially if you're a man. Oh yeah, you get you get this uh, notion that you know you you now need to provide, provide. for a family. Yes, protect, provide, preside, whatever yeah. the heck that means. <laughs> and um, anyway, but Ron Simpson, this this guy, he he said, "Have you ever thought of being a music major?" And I honestly had never once wow. thought of that. I don't wow. know why I hadn't That's thought weird. of that because yeah. the only thing I did when I was growing up was music yeah, and yeah. it was what I loved and it's what I love now. And bless Ron's heart. he said, you know, why don't you just come visit me in my office? And so he kind of explained what a music major was and he was over the, com the commercial music department and had some sway on the admissions in kind of like the commercial studios. Um, and so I, I feel like I sort of fell sideways and backwards through the back mm -hmm. door of the mm -hmm. music school. And I ended up really thriving there. Um, I, I mean, I was sort of a, a driven perfectionist student for better or for worse and so I, you know, I did well in all the theory classes and stuff like that. And it, on the one hand, it fed my, that inner child, the, the creator 
it gave me additional technique and ideas and resources. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, honestly, just letting me hang out in recording studios day and night and writing charts for my friends' albums and, and yeah. inventing stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. That's like me in a candy store. On the other hand, I became convinced that there were such a thing as composers with a capital C, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. the real ones. Yeah, yeah. And um, I feel like I inadvertently took on a lot of psychic damage that was either on purpose or completely on accident, and there's no way to know the difference, and so I just... Why, would, why I, would you think it would be on purpose? Oh, that's not a place to go for an interview. Okay. I think the... I think that the short of it is I, I kind of became convinced that I was a composer with a lowercase C. It's like, oh, well, I, you know, I, I don't have degrees in this. And yeah, I mean, I, I do kind of think that's like, it's a, I think it's very relatable. I think it's a, a thing that a lot of us go through. Yeah. I think I went through a really similar thing when I was getting my degrees where I was like very inspired and busy and, like happy in many ways yeah. and also having like some pretty intense, like imposter bullshit going on. Absolutely. <laughs> well, yes. And I don't want to get into the who did what to whom stuff, sure, sure, but sure. the, the net of it was that I finished my undergrad literally as the valedictorian for my graduating class cool. with what I would describe as really excellent years okay. and no self-confidence mm -hmm. in myself mm -hmm. as a composer. Sure. Wow. Yeah. How, what did you do? How did you solve it? Well, um, I was dating this really great cellist named Liz and we ended up getting married that year, which was great. And we moved to Boston. Okay. When was and this? This was 2006. So okay. we, well, we, we moved to Boston. I think we left on New Year's Day, 2007, um, five weeks after we got married. And she had been a music major at, at BYU and was bored to tears mm. by the curriculum, mm. the cello studio. I was at BYU that year. Oh, were you really? Yeah. Yeah. The cello studio at that point was a disaster. Um, and besides which her passion as a cellist is playing non-classical music anyway. Yeah. And so she had um, applied to Berkeley and gotten okay. accepted there. Cool. And so we moved. For an un for, to finish to her finish undergrad. Her undergrad. Okay. So she transferred from BYU to Berkeley. Okay. And studied with Eugene Friesen, who's, I don't know, he's sort of like the, the you know, the, the, the big, the, probably the most influential cellist among... Um, cellists that have gone off the classical path. He's, cool. he's played with everybody and done everything and is a wonderful human like, being to like boot. Like a Chris Thiele of cellists? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, he was playing with the Paul Winter consort back when, cool. like if you think about like the Wyndham Hill Records boom in the 80s okay. and 90s and a lot of these kind of like folk and jazz and ECM kind of ECM. styles Ugh. entering our, could I love our, more? our popular consciousness. Okay, cool. So he was improvising he was playing brazilian jazz he was doing everything that cool. cellists normally didn't do and that's what liz loved so we went to boston and i was exposed to berkeley and i thought oh, this, interesting why didn't i come here and but but anyway i i just started writing choral music in the margins for really for my own entertainment my own sanity yeah. because i it, it appealed it was reaching out to me yeah and 
um, in a way I was, I guess I was sort of licking my wounds that I, that I, um, took on in undergrad where I thought, oh, well, you know, somebody else is a real composer. I'm, I'm a fake. And so I wrote choral music one piece after another, after another. And over, over the course of a couple of years, I had amassed enough pieces of choral music that, um, you know, that inner kind of creative child was beginning to show up again. Good. And it, and I, I collaborated and put some things together and ended up with, um, an album of my choral music recorded by a really good chamber choir. Wow. And then choral directors started asking me for sheet music. Cool. And I, I thought about it and I thought, well, this is weird. They think I'm a composer. They think I'm one of those capital C guys. They think I'm a composer. <laughs> I mean, I would just like to quickly point out, though, that like, you know, as you're in this kind of like devastation, feeling like you're not a composer, you just kept writing, which I think is like quite an important thing to acknowledge. Um, it is. And I feel like just keep writing is almost always the best advice. Well, the way that it feels to me is like, there's no other option. Like I was just talking about this with Andrew Merrill last night you know, I'm just, I'm putting out, I'm, I'm just getting ready to put out my third album of original music. And I get feeling very complicated about things. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, my parents were like very unsupportive people and not just about my creativity, but just like they're both narcissists and they're, um, very abusive people. And, uh, I don't, my mom is no longer living and I don't have contact with my dad at all. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, any, all this to say, I have trauma, <laughs> like I have trauma about these things. That's like, um, pretty deep, pretty deep seated. And it's such a, it's such an interesting phenomenon that I just like, I, I'm, I've encountered it enough times that I'm very aware of it, but I have no solutions. But like the way that it feels to me is like creativity is the means whereby I survived my childhood. Like it was the, uh, balm you know, yeah. for like all of this kind of, uh, confusion and trauma and, you know, otherwise just pain that I was dealing with as a child. Um, and that is like, you know, period hard stop. Like creativity is joy. <laughs> like I yeah, don't yeah, think yeah. that I ever like, changes. Yeah, creative creativity is a safe haven. It's yeah. a place where time stops and, right? then and you get to sort of exempt yourself from the outside world for a little while. Yes, of course. Absolutely. And then releasing these very pure, beautiful, creative works into the untrained public and the trained public, like the trained, uh, you know, peers, I guess the authorities is really hard <laughs> like a really oh, yeah. scary don't, don't read the comments <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah or the lack thereof you know sure um yeah so i i think like that was kind of the last thing i wanted to talk to you about i mean and you can say anything else you want about your story and what mm -hmm. and what's important but um you know this idea of like how do we kind of cultivate this long-standing resilience? How do we keep creating, you know, if and when the results are not whatever? Well, I think you I've thought about, about a, to say, talk about it anyway. Well, no, no, no. I, I, I've thought about that a little bit. I, um, the 
the way I've sort of described it to myself is that taking for as an example the teaching of composers the way that it's often done. Mm. I feel like um, very oftentimes you have there's composers and imposers, mm. and you have the idea of teaching a creative discipline like composition ends up being somebody else messing up your creativity. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and all of their ego and problems get dumped on you in the form of teaching. Mm. Um, and I would contrasting that though, with my experience with Philip Lasser, who is completely devoted to the art of listening mm. and a person of craft rather than surface level style obsession. Um, that type of teaching is totally different because yeah. what I've learned from him is simply to cultivate my inner ear. Mm -hmm. And in a way it's like to cultivate my inner compass Your too. heart. Yeah. Yeah. And that type of teaching, the world needs that type of teaching yeah. all the time. Yeah. It's how do you, how do you help people honor those creative sparks, the, the, the creative child within and supply to, to buoy up the creative child with technique and you can do that without imposing and with, without trampling and without controlling or discouraging yeah. or, or demoralizing or whatever. And I don't, I'm not going to have, I'm, I'm not trying to make an attribution error here of saying that I think other people are out to harm um, students. But I think that it takes a very special gift to teach people to listen. And I think that's, that's what we all need is yeah. we need to, to spend time listening and helping other people listen. Yeah, I think that's true. And also like just what we were talking about before, like having this kind of resourcefulness or like this kind of what I sometimes call like meta creativity. Like, you know, I've, I've, I just have been teaching this performance class at UVU and it's my first semester teaching it. So I'm kind of like, I don't know what it looked like before. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what the previous teacher was doing. Um, so it's, you know, I, and I, I'm kind of just doing what I think is valuable, but I've given my students this assignment to, um, in each semester, each of the students in the class, I've asked them to find an independent musician who they don't know personally and who doesn't live in Utah mm -hmm. and ask this person about how they make a living as a musician and, you know, just like what kind of just tell us about them. And I feel like my students are not understanding like what this assignment is and are very confused and are like, well, I messaged four people on TikTok and none of them responded. And the thing that I've been thinking about this week is as I'm, cause we've only done, we've only had like, three class periods or something it's just a once a week class four maybe um I want to tell them like in their next class period like this is creativity like be creative <laughs> like try something oh, yeah. else yeah. like this assignment is many things maybe but like not the least of which is applying your identity as a creative person to this small problem <laughs> that I've given you um, and I think like 
or like we were talking about before, like maybe I was just saying before of, you know, having the creativity to um, think of your lesson time or your rehearsal time as like art making. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's also kind of like meta creative, maybe just in your own brain to take to like learn to take that uh, thrill that we get from performance and like get a little bit of it in all of your rehearsals. I don't know. Just those kinds of letting creativity like leak into everything you're doing. Yeah. I think another good word for that is resourcefulness. Yeah. Like, um, or curiosity. If, yeah. 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 I think, um, you know, oftentimes people, artists will say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good at writing or performing, but oh, I'm just so bad at networking or I'm bad yeah. at talking about myself or, and what I usually think is, no, you're you're skilled in writing and skilled in performing, and you have had a lot of experience doing um, incremental uh, skill building yeah, yeah. exercises. Right. Like you know how to do deliberate right. practice. Yeah, you're unskilled in talking to other people. Yeah. You're unskilled in talking about totally. yourself. You're unskilled in a lot of things. What would it look like to take to be as resourceful and creative about solving those skill gaps as you have been about solving the other ones? Totally. Um, any skill gaps that you are working on lately? Um, thinking about? Oh, constantly. Yeah. I mean, as a composer, you never you never close all the gaps. You know, Bach is always going to be there yeah. laughing at you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm I'm I'm, I, I'm still doing strict counterpoint exercises yeah. to train my ears i'm trying to be more i'm trying to have a more embodied rhythmic feel in everything that i write i'm trying to be more inventive uh in my polyphonic control i'm there's all sorts of what about those uh, these things that are tangentially related to your creative pursuits like do you feel like, do you feel like, you know, writing your personal essays or like some of these other practices that you have, like, um, I don't know, are you working toward any specific like goals in, in those places? Yeah. Well, I think broadly I have this, what, when I coming around post-college, 10 years post-college is when I finally looked at myself and said, you know, all of these choral directors think I'm a composer. What would I do differently if I, if I treated myself like one? Yeah, that was a that was a powerful question in that moment. That's a big one. You know, what what would I do differently if I took myself seriously? And I I remember thinking that question and it was almost like a little like um, fissure in my brain. Yeah, it was like, oh, yeah. Whoa, I feel like I might be doing one of those lately as well. Yeah, (laughs) And I and I thought, okay, I am a composer. Never mind whatever stories I had been told or told myself yeah. along the way. I am a composer. I'm going to become a really good one. Mm. And along the path of doing that, I've realized that it's not just that I'm a composer. I am. I have a voice. Yeah. Right. And um, the process of learning to compose has actually also sort of reignited my own passion for just figuring out how to say things. Yeah. And so I have one in the same. Yeah, that's right. So I feel like my voice has different facets. Sometimes I'm writing essays. Sometimes I'm writing 
strategic plans, honestly. Sometimes I'm writing music. I relate to that so much. But all of it is creative. It all involves an organic, honest spark, and it all and it all necessarily involves technique also. Yeah. And so I, even though I, I guess I refer to myself mostly as a composer, I, I think of myself as composer and author, and I have yeah. projects in music and projects in writing that I'm developing kind of in parallel. Yeah. I think in really similar ways. And I, I sometimes struggle a bit with trying to um, explain what it is that I'm doing <laughs> for this, for this reason. Cause I feel similarly in that it's a, it all feels rooted in like the same pursuit, but the manifestations of that pursuit are, like many, um, they it's are a myriad. portfolio of activities and it makes sense to you. Yeah. And in hindsight, it will make sense to other people, but yeah, they, they it, can't see inside of you right now. And so there's no, there's no it point. It does cause a bit of a branding, uh, confusion. Perhaps. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to say about like art and identity or any, just anything else that you would like to soapbox about? Or say or articulate in this moment. Well, I I don't really have a soapbox. Um, the book, The Artist's Way, was I just read it. Yeah, it was hugely influential for me in 2016. I, I call it the crash of 2016. That's mm. when a lot of the a lot of difficult things kind of converged, mm. and I decided. Actually, it was just after the production of The Bridge when you were oh, yeah. co coaching the well, vocalist. Well, I don't know if you remember that, but my mom was dying of brain cancer that year, mm. and I was dealing with the fact that she had never loved me. <laughs> and uh, oh, I also had a crash in 2016. <laughs> the great crash of 2016. It was not, yeah. not a good year. But the, it was a rough one. The outcome also, of it Donald was... Donald Trump was elected. Oh. <laughs> you said his name out loud. It happened. <laughs> Yes. I think people who spend their time learning to care about things and cultivating perception and awareness and the art of listening are less less likely to yield their freedoms to a neo-fascist. But Fair. Um, yeah. Anyway, it was in that year that I picked up, where I, it was the second time I'd read The Artist's Way, actually, oh, and yeah. that really spoke to me, but both at a practice level of learning to be completely honest with myself mm. which means hell yeah i am a composer and i'm going to be a really good one yeah um but and and developing um routines that support my creative mm. work and expression but also just sort of coming around to the fact that it is way better to just do the work of creating what you need to create mm -hmm. than it is to fret about not having done it. I mean, uh, the price of, feels this way I feel to like me as well. the, the price of regret is so huge that even if, you know, even if I don't, uh, write some magnum opus that changes the world or something, which is likely, I mean, it's, that gets back to the astronaut thing. I yeah. mean, you know, what's the probability that I'm going to write something that turns as many heads as yeah. the B minor mass but or at the same fill time, in the blank. It's a false binary. It is. The price of regret for not having tried to do my best and make my best contribution through the talents and passions that God's given me, 
that is unacceptable. Totally. There's no other. I am not going to, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm 41, right? So like, as the clock is ticking, I'm about halfway done with life on earth, given my genes. I mean, maybe slightly less than half, but the point is I am not going to get to the end and look back and say, Oh, gee whiz. I wish I would have tried. I never wrote that thing that I had that idea about. I mean, I'd like to get to that point with a completely empty reservoir because I've written absolutely everything that I felt like I needed to. I feel that way too. Uh, That's such a beautiful thought. And uh, yeah, I think when I, when I, I've, again, like every time I go to, like I start releasing a new work, I stir up all these things and send myself through like, you know, peaks and valleys of depression. (laughs) (laughs) I totally get that. (laughs) But yeah, like I've been thinking a lot lately about this question of like, what do I want? Like what, what does like success, you know, what do I think this means? And yeah, I think I would so much rather have no measure whatsoever of um like external validation but knowing that like I just spent the majority of my days in the pursuit of things that like felt beautiful. Like it just yeah, well, I mean, it just ultimately feels better even if it's not acknowledged by anyone. Even if it seems like a myth to every, you know anyone looking in. Sure. Like it, like if and that's the weird thing about totally art, right? Is there's the, there's the dimension that is the inside of you looking out, and then there's the 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 reality that we live in a world with other people, and we're interested in knowing. It's like, did I did that resonate with anybody? Does yeah. anybody else care about it? You can't get around that. But I studied briefly with a teacher in Boston named Lyle Davidson. He was a longtime professor at New England Conservatory, and when he was young, he studied actually with a I think she was a, a Nadia Boulanger protege. Now that I think about it, Louise Vosgershian, Vosgershian, I can't say her last name. Anyway, she was sort of a renowned uh, professor at Harvard and cool. this like um, relentless um, um, expectation of excellence mm-hmm. and all these kinds mm-hmm. of things. And he worked through, uh, if I remember right, he had worked through all of the Vidal bases okay. with her. Cool. All these kind of elaborate um, harmony exercises, basically. And at the end of this, she closed the piano and said, well, I have nothing left to teach you. Um, what will you do now? Yeah. And he said that he started saying, well, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll teach a little bit and I'll compose. And she said, no. And she slams her hand down yeah. on the piano. And she said, you will do what music demands of you. Yeah. And it's really interesting yeah. because I feel like that actually gets back a little bit to like what Stephen King was saying about um, you're not in charge. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. B- the book is the boss, right? Yeah. You, you are in charge of showing up and paying attention. And if you see a little shard of bone sticking out of the, gro- out of the ground, you unearth it and see what's there. Yeah. And I feel like the, the imperative that Louise Vosgershian offered was you don't know where it's leading you don't know if anybody else in the world's going to care about this fossil that you find but you do what music demands of you yeah and i love that because yeah, i feel yeah. like in a way it kind of i mean all of the external stuff matters at some level but it also lets you off the hook and you say okay i'm gonna i will be honest i'll be trusting and i'm gonna do what music demands of me yeah 
Yeah. And we'll just see what happens. We'll just see. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is easier to sleep at night knowing you've done what music demanded. Yeah. <laughs> right. It feels that way to me. If it is sometimes quite fraught. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's where the, these, the sense of elation and flow, like they talk about yeah. in psychology, that all comes from seeing that little glint in the ground yeah. and starting to unearth it. You lose track of time. Mm-hmm. You you learn mm-hmm. immense amounts about the discipline. Yeah. You build your technique. You build your craft. And if all goes well, you build some, you create something that's cool yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. beautiful, and that you know maybe it'll maybe other people will think the same thing too. Totally. But if, but if not, you've had that experience, Hardcore and and you won't go to your deathbed thinking, oh well, what if I had unearthed that one fossil that I saw that one time. Well, and also like, it's just self-sustaining. At least that's how I feel. Like it feels like there's no other, there's no other option. Like as I was talking about this with another guest recently, but like as painful as it is to devote all this care to unearthing that fossil and then saying to the world, like, look at this thing that I found that I enabled and having people be like, ah, well, that's nothing. Like as painful as that is, the joy that you uh, glean from and gather from unearthing that fossil is like, it's, it, it's more, it's like, it's, I don't know. It's, it's enough. Well, the joy of it, you know, you think about Joshua Bell with his violin case in the subway tunnel, he's busking, right? Cause I feel like there, there are things that will fill up your case with people's spare change sort of as evidence that they care about what you're doing mm. and that's fine because you you need enough spare change to keep the lights on right but the creative work itself fills you up on the inside yeah 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 and you know it's like both both accounts need mad, to have matter some, yeah you, you, they do but um you know I, growing up i always was convinced of this kind of very american notion that either you make it and yeah. you pay all your bills with music Mm-hmm. or you haven't made it yeah. as an artist. Yeah. And when Liz and I lived in Ireland for a year, it was really instructive because she was playing with the very best Irish traditional musicians in a community of people that love their music. And so many of them are teachers and engineers and stuff like yeah, that by yeah. day. And they just don't even think twice about it because yeah. what on earth does the busking case have to do with that internal right. account? right. And I have a much different yeah. attitude now. I was really changed by that where I think, okay, so I've, I am, I'd like to think that I can. Do you fill both with fill the both. same activity. I'd like to think that you can. I'd like to think that talented people can do that. But if not, you know, you fill yeah. the one account so doing whatever. Say, like, there's and, so many ways to fill the, the bank account. And yeah. there's, there's not, there's, there's one way for you to fill that middle, that other thing, and that's to f- follow these inspiration that you have. Yeah, yeah. Now, I remember working with a woman named Janet at a previous um, day job, and she filled the bank account working there, and then she would go home, and her garden yeah. was yeah. her happy place. That's where she filled up on the inside. Yeah. And for her, you know, it's a little bit like the... Um, shop class book that I was describing, you know, like a motorcycle, putting her hands on a motorcycle parts and putting, mm-hmm. taking them apart and putting them together for her. It, that was 
that was her flow place that filled her up on the inside and gardening. I like gardening kind of, but it's not the place where I recharge and um, I'm trying to have it both ways by both filling up on the inside and filling up the busking case with music. Yeah. But I think in, on my, on my deathbed, it will not be, did I make or not make it, you know, commercially it's, did I nurture that spark and did I write the things, did I make the things that I was capable of making? Yeah. That's, that's a good, that's a beautiful thought. Okay. I ask everybody the same two questions at the very end today. What is your dream collaboration? You can assemble a whole team. You can invite anyone you want to work on a project with you. What is the project and who is there? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is um, uh, basically the the whole roster on None Such Records. Great. Love <laughs> it. Excellent. Some huge, giant, mega collaboration. I mean, I would... I would love for Don Upshaw to sing a cycle of art songs that oh. I've written. I'd love for Brad Meldow to uh, play on a on a different album that I'm working on. Um, you know, the, I think as a stable of artists, there there, is, the, there isn't any finer cool. than than the None Such crowd. Excellent. Okay. And then finally, tell everybody where to find your work. Oh, I'm easy to find. AndrewMaxfield.org. Okay, great. Andrew, thanks so much. It was such a pleasure to get to know you better and chat with you. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from My Album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, you can reach me through my website, emilymerrellmusic.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-M-E-R-R-E-L-L music.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.